Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod. If only you could heat your home with good intentions. We continue our coverage of BC Utilities Commission shutting down a proposed natural gas pipeline expansion for the fast-growing Okanagan region. Plus, with so many overpasses being damaged by trucks, a city councillor says it's time we consider making overpasses taller. Plus, is it time the region actually have a snow summit to better prepare for winter storms and road clearing? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. I wanted to revisit one of our stories uh, from yesterday, and I want to put some context to it. Now, Florida Species Gas System, Natural Gas System, delivered double the energy BC Hydro did on Friday, January 12th. Remember that cold Friday, just last Friday, when the province was at its coldest? BC Hydro delivered 11,300 megawatts of energy compared to Florida Species Gas System delivering 21,000 megawatts at the highest point of demand for BC customers. That speaks to the importance of natural gas in British Columbia. Now, on December 22nd, uh, just a few weeks ago, the BC Utilities Commission turned down Florida Species' proposal to expand their natural gas pipeline capacity in the Okanagan region. Now, if you've been to the Okanagan, you know how fast-growing that region is. The Kelowna's, the Penticton's, the Vernon's, lots of folks moving to the Okanagan. Now, Fortis, using $327 million in private dollars, wanted to build a 30-kilometer extension to their pipeline network in the area to deal with the increased demand in the Okanagan. Now, Fortis's own forecast showed that without any expansion uh, to the existing network, uh, things would be, the energy would be exhausted in just two winters from now. Just think about that for a second, that uh, the demand for natural gas continues to grow and the existing network would be exhausted within two winters. Now, the proposal, of course, makes sense, but the two-person UBC Utilities Commission panel denied the request because it didn't fit in with our province's clean BC plan. Yesterday, we were joined by Fortis Vice President Doug Slater to discuss uh, the issue. Take a listen to his comments. You know, we were really encouraged to see that the BCUC did agree with us that there is an immediate capacity shortfall in the Okanagan that does require a solution. So, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but if if they're acknowledging what you have said, that they need more capacity in that area, and they're not giving you the go-ahead because partially of uh, the government's Clean BC plan, will you have to restrict services to Okanagan customers when it comes to natural gas based on this ruling? Well, as part of the decision that the BCUC made, we will be developing and have been ordered to file a revised plan to meet capacity, uh, including over the next few years and thereafter. That's going to be filed mid-year. The the simplest way to describe it, Jazz, is that the BCUC uh, agreed with us on the that, that there is a short-term capacity shortfall, but they didn't agree on what the solution is. And so they've asked us to come back uh, and search, uh, uh, propose other solutions to meet the need. So uh, we agree that uh, you need more natural gas, but uh, go find another solution that doesn't involve natural gas. So that's what they're saying, essentially. Joining me now to discuss this ruling is Kevin Falcon, leader of the BC United Party. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, Jazz. Uh, the story over the weekend uh, that Vancouver Sun columnist um, Vaughn Palmer touched upon, where Fortis basically uh, applied for a 30-kilometer extension of a natural gas pipeline, turned down... Uh, because of our pro- uh, province's climate action plan. Your thoughts on that? Well, we've been warning about exactly this kind of situation. So just to remind your listeners, uh, their so-called Clean BC plan, which we call the Cost BC plan, says that BC must reach 40% emissions reductions in the next six years. The only way that's going to happen, their own plan confirms this through their own economic modeling, is that they have to shrink the GDP, the economy of this province, by 10% uh, over the next six years. And that means that 
projects that normally would just go forward without any thought, like this uh, natural gas extension project, are now being turned down because they are inconsistent with what the NDP are driving us to. And here's the problem. Um, you know, it makes a marginal difference in terms of global emission reduction. It's very short-sighted, and worse than that, it puts uh, one of the fastest-growing parts of the province, which is the Okanagan, at risk of future rolling blackouts and blackouts because they will not have that secure, steady power support uh, support that they need, uh, which natural gas can also provide. Do you see other decisions like this coming down uh, as well uh, in regards to uh, wanting to move forward with their Clean BC plan and potentially other other uh, projects now being uh, now potentially jeopardized because a a, a lack of uh, energy or in the ca- this case just uh, you know providing extra capacity for traditional energy conventional energy. Oh, very much so because you know it, it it's just math. I mean, there there are clean power projects even up in Prince George, which I'm about to fly to. Uh, to attend the resource summit that requires significant power uh, to to realize their potential, a thousand megawatts. And one project I'm thinking of in Prince George specifically that will never go ahead because we haven't got the power to be able to supply them. And so this is why I think it's important the public understand that when the NDP opposed the Site C Dam, and when they opposed our efforts back in the 2000s under the BC Liberals to expand independent power projects, which gave us solar projects, wind power projects, run-of-the-river projects, which provided additional power capacity. They cancelled most of those projects, over 90% of them in partnerships with First Nations. That was very short-sighted. Obviously, we, they know that now even. So the NP are now supporting Site C, obviously, and they're also supporting the expansion of independent power projects. But we lost seven years uh, where we could have encouraged more of that power and we wouldn't be facing the kind of shortfalls we're facing now. So I think the public really needs to hear this. We have to have all sources to make sure we balance ourselves out and have reliable power that's backed up by natural gas where that makes sense too so that we ensure that British Columbians aren't going to face a situation where they could find uh, power you know, blackouts or, or rolling power shortages, which is what the um, Utilities Commission acknowledges we're going to face within two years in the Okanagan. Uh, what would a clean... Uh, BC plan under a Kevin Falcon government look like? And the reason, reason I'm asking is, A, uh, you say it's going to impact our GDP in this case. Um, you've talked in the past that other provinces walk away from a carbon tax. You would also walk away for a car- from a carbon tax here in British Columbia. What would your policy look like in regards to greening our energy source? Sure, two things. First of all, on the carbon tax, there's no way... Uh, that we support what the NDP have done to the carbon tax. It used to be revenue neutral, meaning every penny by law had to go back into the pockets of British Columbians in the form of lower personal and business taxes. Now that they've taken away that in their very first budget back in 2017, they take all the money into government, they more than doubled it, and now they want to triple it in the next six years. There's no chance I'm signing on onto that. So what we've said is, look, British Columbia could shut off every light, park every car and truck and shut down our economy and it would represent less than two days of emissions out of China. So it's better that we take something we have in abundance, which is natural gas, ship it to Asia in the form of LNG and allow them to reduce their emissions by 50% because they are being powered largely by coal-fired power, which is the dirtiest kind of emissions you can get. So we could help Asia make dramatic global emission reductions, which would help the globe, while at the same time Uh, supporting jobs here in British Columbia. So we think a common-sense approach like that uh, that will also go big on clean, green technology because we've got all kinds of uh, solar, wind power providers, um, 
run of the river uh, advocates that want to get back to doing projects in British Columbia here. And we would roll out the red carpet. We would make sure they've got uh, the kind of regulatory regime that's going to see those projects up and running fast and uh, bring in private capital to help us get the energy needs we need in British Columbia. Do you think we have an obligation, though, to green our economy, to green our energy source to the point we're at zero emissions? I know BC Hydro is clean and green energy, uh, but in regards to uh, eliminating the use of natural gas, it does burn 45% cleaner than coal, but it's still a fossil fuel, especially when it comes to methane. It does do damage. Uh, you see it uh, with city councillors in Nanaimo voting to, to get rid of natural gas. The conversation is front and centre in Metro Vancouver as well. Do you uh, support the idea of moving away from natural gas, uh, like civic officials are already doing so in some communities, and in this case with the BC Utilities Commission, our province's plan is to move away. Do you still think we need to be setting up a plan to walk away from natural gas? No, I don't think we should be walking away from natural gas. We are in a position that is unique around the world. There are jurisdictions that look at us with incredible envy that we've got the ability to have natural gas, which can be an important part of our electrification uh, efforts. We're fortunate that uh, governments like uh, Gordon Campbell, WAC Bennett, Bill Bennett had the vision to build the big dams that provide 98% of our electrical power. And, and of course, that's clean, green. It's wonderful. Uh, but we have to make sure, too, as our province grows, that we've got backup power to ensure that we're not going to have a situation like the uh, BC Utilities Commission acknowledges in the Okanagan, that by their decision, which they are almost required to make because the NDP uh, cost-BC plan says that they've got to um, shut down these fossil fuel options, means that they could face uh, you know, uh, rolling blackouts and power shortages in, in two short years. And that's not acceptable for the province. We have to make sure we've got all the abilities, including natural gas, to ensure that the public is protected, that we're going to have the power we need, that people's homes will remain heated as we transition to that greener future that we all want. I'm a big part of that, too. I want to have a green future for my kids and my grandkids one day. Uh, but I can tell you we're not going to get there overnight. We have to be smart about how we do it. Uh, final question. Uh, there's going to be a call for power from BC Hydro. Uh, Richard McCandless was on our show yesterday, public servant who obviously follows uh, BC Hydro and ICBC very closely, uh, which you know of, of course. But one of the things he said he was concerned about was the very fact that the transition to especially wind, he thinks this is where hydro is going, the use of wind power, but he's worried that we will not have enough capacity to, to, to for all of this uh, new energy that we need, that we still need to tr look at traditional uh, sources. Do you think uh, hydro should be heading in that direction? I mean, looking at newer technology, looking at wind and solar and other um, types of energy, but that we still need to be uh, not walk away quickly enough from fossil fuels? Oh, well, you know, I, first of all, I have an enormous respect for Richard. I think he's probably the one of the great experts in the province, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. Um, we cannot, you know, look, we all want to get to the right place, but if we move too quickly and irresponsibly, we're going to find ourselves in a position where British Columbians are going to be facing rolling blackouts. I will not allow that to happen. And look, you know, I, that's why I fought so hard for Site C, uh, even in the teeth of opposition from the NDP. And that's why we fought so hard for independent power projects. Over 90% of them partnered with First Nations to actually create solar and wind power and run-of-the-river power uh, that the NDP cancelled or wouldn't renew. That's short-sighted. We've got to not only do all that, but make sure that natural gas also figures as part of that base backup load that we're going to need uh, should we run into future uh, cold snaps like we are in a, inevitably going to do as the climate continues to change. Kevin, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. 
No problem. Thanks for having me, Jazz. All right, let's focus on another story. Uh, yesterday, we had learned uh, that um, there was reports of a truck uh, and an overpass being hit, the Gilmore Overpass, which is eastbound on Highway 1. Now, the police and the uh, Ministry of Transportation's Commercial Vehicle Enforcement Branch uh, investigated. Uh, we have learned that it was minor damage to a sign attached to the overpass. There was no visible damage to the bridge. Turns out the commercial vehicle was transporting a helicopter and the driver had received an oversized permit. However, the height exceeded what was stated on the permit. Permit. Uh, the carrier involved is International Machine Transport Inc., which has been issued an immediate suspension across their 20-vehicle fleet uh, until the investigation is complete. But once again, uh, the story highlights the challenge around trucks and overpasses. In fact, 31 overpasses have been hit over the past two years. Our next guest says, let's revisit the whole issue around overpasses. Do we need to build them taller? Do they have to change? Is it about more fines? Joining me now to talk a little bit about overpasses and whether or not we need to perhaps make them a little taller as we build out our infrastructure. Joining me now is Dylan Kruger, City Councillor in Delta. Dylan, thank you for joining us. Jazz, thanks for having me. So walk me through this. Do you think that we should actually seriously start looking at building overpasses that are a bit taller? To my understanding, I think right now we build them to about five meters, and that should generally, uh, generally, uh, you know, accommodate the vast majority of commercial commercial vehicles. Uh, Jazz, it's it's one part of the solution, and I want to be very clear. Uh, the culpability here is on the negligence of the drivers and the companies that they that they work for. Uh, now, thousands of trucks go through Metro Vancouver every day, and 99.9% of them uh, understand the rules and, and regulations of the road. Uh, there's a very small number of actors, and that, that number does seem to be growing. It seems that every week it's, uh, all right, another week, whatever pass are we hitting this week? I mean, it's just getting absolutely, cra- uh, absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, number one, we need legislative changes to increase fines. The, the province recently... Uh, up them from $115 to $575. That's the maximum that they're allowed to do under current legislation. That's just the cost of doing business. That's a drop in the bucket. That is not punitive. That's certainly not helping uh, to re- recoup the costs uh, to taxpayers in the hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars every time there's an incident. So that's number one. So before, uh, before no, we move on, yeah. what do you think the fine should be if once the legislation is changed and you can charge, uh, you know, and, uh, hand somebody a bigger fine, what do you think the fine should be? Uh, it, it needs to be sufficiently punitive, and it needs to be uh, helping to pay for a percentage of, of the repairs. We have taxpayers on the hook uh, for hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars in repairs per overpass. And in Delta, my city alone, we've had three hit in the last six months of the 31-plus that you've mentioned. Uh, and every time an overpass is hit, there is damage to the local economy, businesses that have to shut down, commuters stuck in traffic. Uh, I can't tell you a number, but I tell you it's going to be a heck of a lot more than $575. And correct me if I'm wrong, one of the one of the overpasses, it was quite significant, they're going to repair it. I mean, it, you can still go, use it, uh, but there's going to have to, there's going to be some, they're, they, it does require some work, and I think that's $10 million. Is that the budget for one of the overpasses? Yeah, well, the, the number keeps growing because, of course, it doesn't help that we're doing the repair work uh, during this cold snap. But that's the Highway 17A overpass right on the southbound side of the George Massey Tunnel. Uh, it's nine weeks of repair work. Uh, 
during that time, uh, weekends and evenings, the overpass will be completely closed in one direction. That has significant impacts for uh, restaurants, breweries, uh, other sorts of businesses in the Tilbury Industrial Park. It has impacts for residents living on the wrong side of that overpass that are cut off from emergency services like hospitals, doctor's offices, grocery stores. There are real costs to real people that are impacted by every one of these closures. Uh, and we need to share that it's great that we're cutting off the licenses for these companies and charging them $575. Uh, but there's real punitive damages that need to be paid here. Okay, so that's that's number one in regards to the damages themselves. What do you think about just future overpasses as we continue to build, rebuild, rehabilitate, that we just make these overpasses higher? Yeah, well, there's no question, and some of this work is already happening, but it's worth another look. Every time we do an upgrade, and we spend... Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on strategic uh, upgrades to provincial infrastructure every single year. Uh, We're right-sizing and building our infrastructure to modern standards. The vast majority of highways and overpasses in this region uh, were built 50, 60 years ago. Trucks are larger today than they were 50, 60 years ago. We're carrying higher loads than 50, 60 years ago. Now, I don't want to remove culpability and responsibility to the drivers and the companies they work for when I say this. But at the same time, uh, we should be doing the responsible thing and ensuring that every time we're doing an upgrade in the region, uh, we're bringing our, our overpasses up to modern standards. So I, I, I think I misspoke when you and I were first talking. So all new infrastructure that's being made, the Ministry of Transportation says, has a minimum height standard uh, that is five meters. Um, the Glover Road crossing, uh, which is part of the Fraser Valley Highway 1 corridor improvement program, will have a height clearance of 5.2 meters. I'm going to assume the Steveston overpass that they're building on the north side on the Richmond side of the Massey Tunnel, that's going to be a little higher than uh, what the original Steveston overpass was at, which was built in 1959. Um, um, other provinces, and I didn't realize this, are having similar problems as well. If you Google Alberta and overpasses in Ontario and overpasses, it's more common than we think. Uh, your thoughts on a national strategy or national penalties uh, in regards to dealing with this issue? Well, Jazz, we need to understand that when this starts to happen over and over and over again, 30 plus times since December 2021, there is a national economic impact. These highways, I'll, I'll keep using Highway 99 as an example because it's in my backyard. Highway 99 uh, is a major national trade corridor connecting all of Canada to the Blaine U.S. border crossing, to Delta Port, the largest container port terminal in Western Canada, uh, to BC Ferries, the gateway to Vancouver Island. Uh, every single time an overpass is hit and people are stuck in traffic, there are national impacts. It is affecting the ability to get goods to market, uh, to get uh, supplies where they need to be, to get people paid for the work that they do. So it is a national imperative uh, that, that we have uh, freedom of mobility across this country, not just for people, but also for goods. Maybe the problem is just these schools. I don't know the age of these drivers. I'm going to just assume they're younger, not as experienced. Maybe that's wrong on my part. I'm just making an assumption. Should we be focusing more on these schools that are graduating these individuals? Because I, I don't see, you know, I don't see older drivers that are experienced for a real long time getting into this type of trouble. And trucking is going to be like no other, just like every other industry. You've got baby boomers retiring, a lot of institutional knowledge and history there. How much of this do you think is just new drivers coming out of some of these schools and perhaps they're not trained um, as well as they should be? The companies aren't demanding um, a certain amount of accountability or maybe it's customers demanding faster and faster deliveries. I don't know. Or maybe it's all of that. Do you think part of that is just the industry and, and how these drivers are being, new drivers are being trained? I think you're right, and I also don't think it's it's limited to trucking. I think truck. I think this is a part of the larger uh, narrative around labor shortages that every industry is experiencing. 
including, uh, you know, government and city halls. Uh, it is very difficult to attract new labor. Uh, it is very difficult to attract good talent. Uh, and unfortunately, what that means is you have underqualified drivers being put into situations by the companies that they work for uh, that they have no business being in. And I heard one interview from an Alberta-based truck driver who admitted that he felt uncomfortable uh, driving some of the loads that he was required to drive. He felt that he didn't have the adequate training. Uh, but companies that are in very limited uh, labor situations uh, sometimes will put people in those vulnerable situations. And uh, so it's part of the larger, the larger labor shortage issue, uh, but certainly fines uh, and education uh, and, and infrastructure upgrades are the three points that I think we need to look at. Dylan, thank you for your time. Jazz, thanks so much for having me. We're joined by uh, show contributor Jerry Mayor Judson, and uh, I I know you're from Calgary. I bring this up all the time. I feel like I mention it all the time too, especially no, this time of year. I got a kick out of the fact that we've got uh, somebody from a different jurisdiction to explain winter to us in the perspective. It's, <laughs> it's tough. It doesn't happen every year. So I was, you know, we were all present last Thursday, and uh, it was it was quite something. It wasn't as bad as Snowmageddon last year. Yeah. However, it only, only took you what two and a half hours or something like that to get home around eight o'clock. Yeah, eight o'clock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was there was just it was just clearing and traffic. That's all it was. And I yeah. waited till. 7.45 to leave downtown Vancouver. Which is clever. And only took you two and a half hours to get across the river, right? That's pretty nutty. Um, and it, I give you that. There was a lot of sheet ice on the road, and that was kind of the scary part of it all. But mm-hmm. uh, ICBC came out this week with a survey that they did of all of the regions of British Columbia mm-hmm. uh, about winter tire uptake. So, oh. yeah. So the lower mainland drivers polled uh, okay. had a 76% uptake rate on having winter tires on their car, which you think that's three quarters of people. Ideally, we have 100, but you look at other regions, right, where it is uh, 93% in the southern interior and 90% in northern British Columbia. And so that's a discrepancy. And, you know, when the snow falls, we all kind of have that that moment, you know, where you can tell that people might not have winter tires. I think people in Metro Vancouver are lying. I think that maybe the kinds of... 76%? I think the kinds of people who would respond to the ICBC poll, honestly, about their winter tires, they might be the kinds of people who would have winter tires. We're not talking about seasonal tires, all weather tires. No, no, no. Specifically winter winter tires. tires. Yeah, with the little snowflake. I don't buy that. 76% for Allegedly. For for the lower mainland. So maybe folks further east are are bringing it (laughs) up, but close to the valley, maybe we're bringing it up. So I was like, hmm, interesting. And sort of as we're staring down the barrel of a big snowstorm overnight, I thought it would be useful to talk about this. So I talked to Shabnam Afzal. She's the director of Road Safety Policy and Programs over at ICBC. And I asked asked her, are one quarter of us driving on our all-season tires because we think we're just immune to snow? You know, I think that's it. We don't really have much snow in the lower mainland. And, and so we tend not to really think about it until it happens. And every year we see that big rise in collisions in January where we have crashes go up 91% where people are driving too fast for conditions and most of them probably do not have snow tires either. So I think it's a real big factor is that we just don't have this weather very often, but when it does hit us, even 
that small amount of snow on Thursday, what we see is like a huge increase uh, in those types of collisions that are as a result of uh, not having snow tires, driving too fast for conditions and so on. I hear that the small amount of snow that we did have on Thursday had a pretty big impact in the number of claims that you usually see. Yeah, exactly. So actually we saw a 160% increase over the daily average of what we would normally see on a day in January. So normally we would have about 1,300 claims and the claims were actually 3,500 on that day. So you can see that is more than double. So it's a massive increase. I assume like it's not all just because of having winter tires. Sometimes it's not just wheels to the road, but it is those sort of human factory things like people probably get freaked out when they see oh god there's snow on the road or they see that the road is shiny or something like that you know it's difficult when you're not used to driving in this kind of weather maybe you've never driven in snow before and my advice is don't drive if you if you don't feel confident and you feel that you're going to be at risk then the best case scenario is avoid driving on on a day such as Thursday, and take transit if, if that's available in, in your area. But where it isn't, I think one of the key things is prepare your vehicle. So aside from snow tires, um, there's other things you can do. You know, you can make sure you have headlights that are working, taillights that are working so people can see you and you can see them. But also just allow yourself extra time. Because this kind of driving is not business as usual. And the speed limits are obviously set for really good conditions. They're not set for snow conditions. Um, so allow yourself some extra time and slow down. Increase your distance from the cars in front as well. That's the other kind of tip um, that I would give is as you're approaching like an intersection, also be mindful because there's pedestrians and there's um, other people on the road other than cars as well who who will really not fare well if they're hit by your vehicles. And the other thing is black ice. So even where there isn't snow, there could be black ice and that can be a really deadly issue as well on the roads. It hangs around that perfect temperature for just sheets of ice to be on the road that you don't see. Um, and that is super freaky. And then, you know, losing temporary control of your vehicle, lots of people understandably panic. So those sudden movements, they're, they're so dangerous. So people don't realize when they see something happening, they panic and suddenly they slam on the brakes. And of course, the wheels will just slip and slide. So it's better to actually avoid sudden movements. Um, and if you're driving slower, it's that's not too difficult, right? But if obviously, if you're driving fast, then there's nothing you can do. It, you're going to have to be you know, slamming on those brakes, and that's not going to be very helpful. Um, avoid changing lanes all over the place, and you're not going to get where you're going any faster. Leave yourself that extra time. Calm down and just be aware there's other road users on the road, other drivers, even if you feel that you've got your winter tires, you've got your four-wheel drive, you know, you're well-equipped. There may be others who are not. And you are, you are sharing the road with them. So what they do also will impact you. So I, I think that's the advice, you know, just be aware of your surroundings and slow down. It's a team effort, right, to keep those to keep those claims all the way down to where they're supposed to be and to make sure that everyone can get home safely. It's not about you getting home quickly. It's about everybody getting home safely. Yeah, and they always think it won't happen to them. And they always think they look on the um, on TV and Twitter and social media and they see all these people in crashes and they think, oh, that won't be me. But guess what? It could be. 
Oh, it will be. It will be. <laughs> it will be. It very well could uh, certainly be. Yeah, I think you know what I always find is uh, even um, coming in on Monday. Yeah, and it was still cold that day, and there is black ice. It's just people are driving really fast still. That's the thing. You just have to. I know it sucks, but just slow <laughs> on down and leave extra space between you and the person in front of you, and then we will have fewer twenty-five car pileups and and things like that, which they just that shouldn't exist. It shouldn't know. exist. Well, <sighs> fingers crossed, things are better, but. But uh, uh, it's going to be very interesting overnight with the uh, you know s- rain, freezing rain, and snow, and snow as well. So lots of stuff happening. For the love of God, drive safely, please. It, it- Premier David Eby, like a lot of elected officials, is up in Prince George today, part of the uh, BC Resources uh, Summit, when uh, the forest industry, the LNG industry, the mining industry, anything to do with extraction uh, of uh, natural resources. Well, everybody's meeting up in Prince George uh, this week, uh, talking about a variety of issues. Uh, but the, the Premier was there uh, making an announcement uh, regarding a clean hydrogen system, uh, which would be, uh, which is a project proposed by a based Heralta Hydrogen Solutions. Uh, basically, they would use uh, hydrogen, uh, which would help reduce natural gas use for Canfor's pulp mill in that area. It would help uh, reduce uh, natural gas by about 25%. Here is Premier Eby making that announcement in Prince George. The announcement uh, today about this very exciting uh, project here uh, is that Chemtrade uh, has, uh, has identified an opportunity uh, in their production of sodium chlorate uh, to take waste hydrogen uh, and turn it, in, in partnership with Teralta, to turn it into a low-carbon fuel source uh, for Canfor's pulp and paper mill across the street uh, to, uh, to displace natural gas. Uh, this project will reduce 25% of the natural gas used by the pulp mill, uh, reducing carbon emissions, and, uh, and creating an opportunity out of a, a waste product uh, that was uh, previously just being vented. This, of course, uh, uh, continues or adds to the broader conversation about energy, energy use in our province as we make that transition uh, to other uh, energy solutions. But we continue to talk about hydroelectric, BC Hydro, uh, Fortis BC and natural gas. Where does uh, you know, traditional uh, conventional fuel fit into that conversation? We've just had a conversation with uh, Kevin Falcon at 3 o'clock hour where he was uh, quite concerned about BC Utilities' decision to not allow Fortis BC to go ahead to expand their natural gas network in the Okanagan. And Fortis has already said within the next two years, they'll be at capacity there. They need more pipeline uh, for that area, about 30 kilometers. They'll pay for it themselves. It's a private company. But still, the Utilities Commission said, we agree you need more. But uh, it does um, go up against BC's clean, clean energy program. And so those are some of the conversations that are going around, just as the Premier is, of course, announcing uh, this hydrogen project uh, in Prince George. Joining me now to talk a little bit about today's announcement and the broader conversations around energy is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon, Jess. Thanks for having me. So how big of an announcement is this uh, in regards to this hydrogen project in Prince George? It's significant, but I think we're going to get bigger announcements coming in the next few hours here. So Premier Eby is spending uh, today and tomorrow in Prince George. You know, it's not that long ago where, 
you know, NDP premiers would probably not feel particularly comfortable at an event like this. You know, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of representation for the party uh, in the region in northern British Columbia. There had been questions for a long time around the party's ability to develop resources. Uh, there had been a thought for a long time that it was a party that sided with the unionized side of resource development rather than the private sector. But a lot of that has changed. And, you know, through the work that Premier Horgan did leading into Premier Eby, uh, there is now quite a strong reception uh, for the Premier at an event like this. And so the hydrogen project is crucial for all the reasons you outlined. It's about those two key priorities from this government, ensuring that the forestry sector remains viable and healthy in this province, and this project helps support the Canfor mill. And then the other bigger part of this is in ensuring that the province is hitting and maintaining its climate targets. You don't have to go very far to hear David Eby speak about the challenges we are facing in this province around climate. Our climate is changing. We're going to experience it over the next 24 hours with another snowstorm that's going to go through Metro Vancouver and Southern Vancouver Island and cause chaos. We saw record-breaking fires last summer. We're still reeling from the atmospheric river. All of those are impacts of climate change. And these types of projects, this hydrogen project in this case, help reduce emissions and hit those long-term goals around climate. Now, my conversation... Tonight's going to be the big address from the Premier, and I expect that we're going to see more in terms of commitments around BC Hydro and where they are at in terms of power generation and more announcements around protecting our forest sector in this province. Uh, Let's listen to David Eby again. Uh, Here's him commenting about a task force, uh, putting together a task force, uh, talking about uh, accelerating BC Hydro's uh, generation capacity. Uh, We put together a task force at BC Hydro to accelerate their generation capacity. Uh, Drought uh, definitely is an issue for BC Hydro around uh, hydroelectrical generation. Uh, But you can see through careful management that BC Hydro uh, weathered this very cold period and was able to support our neighbors in Alberta and in Washington State uh, when their systems were in trouble. Uh, They helped us during the forest fire season. We're so grateful for that. Glad to help them during the cold weather and for the long term for our hydro grid stability. Uh, and for the economic opportunities that are there, you're going to hear more from us about expanding uh, those resources. Now, there has been a lot of conversation around BC Hydro and its call for power. Yesterday, Richard McCandless was here uh, joining us on the show, uh, and he's a retired public servant, but who follows BC Hydro very closely. Real middle-of-the-road guy, but uh, knows his stuff, certainly. And one of the things he said was the focus for BC Hydro moving forward in this call to power is really going to be wind. Uh, But he says he is concerned, A, first, not just on wind, but just the ability for BC Hydro moving forward to generate the type of capacity they say they want to generate, uh, number one. And number two, he also believes that you can't sort of make that rush away from fossil fuels as quickly as we probably like. Uh, This, of course, is coming with, uh, you know, uh, Fortis BC being told they can't even expand their uh, pipeline network. Uh, uh, by a 30 kilometers. So let's listen to Premier E.B. again in regards to criticism, uh, c- citing uh, c- criticism from folks uh, saying that there may be an energy shortage by 2026 in B.C. Take a listen. The core of, of the idea that we need to increase our electrical supply uh, is, uh, is one that I agree with. Um, we've been working with B.C. Hydro uh, to expedite uh, uh, our approval processes and their processes to make sure we're bringing that power on. Uh, I'll have more to say about uh, the work that BC Hydro is doing in terms of their overall work. Uh, they have 
done, issued the first power call in a generation, 3,000 megawatts of renewable power for our province. Uh, I'm proud of BC Hydro's work. It was our province that supported Alberta and Washington State when their grids went down. Um, and, uh, and I'm glad that we were able to do that. Uh, but we also need to be strong in the future as well. And so we're doing the planning work that's necessary around that. So, Richard, this is a, a huge, huge undertaking. How successful yep. do you think we'll be in regards to the 3,000 megawatts? Obviously, they want significant uh, participation for First Nations communities. And Richard said he thinks where this is all headed, really, at the end of the day, is more wind power. But there's always going to be challenges with any energy source. But how successful do you think BC Hydro will be in regards to wind and, uh, and probably some independent power producers being involved as well? Yeah, it depends how you define success, right? Like this is going to cost money and potentially a lot of money up front from the province. The worry here is that we are going to become an importer of power rather than an exporter of power. We have Site C coming online, but that power has all been accounted for. You know, as we electrify our grid for personal use in terms of electric vehicles, but also for industry, we're not we're running out of that power. And as the Premier spoke to, and you and I have spoken about this in the past, we are looking at these drought conditions that are not just a one or two year problem, but potentially a long term problem. And as we have more drought in this province, it means that our dams produce less electricity. So we look at alternatives. What will it cost to um, invest in a substantial wind sector in this province? How much power can that generate? And then what does it look like to work with these independent power producers and what will the costs look like? So there will be companies at the table here willing to work with British Columbia to help develop these sectors whether it's going to be fruitful or not, and, and how much of that work is going to be taken on by independence compared to hydro, that's going to be the big challenge and ultimately will be the determining factor in answering that question about whether all of this is successful or not. What do you make of this criticism uh, of the Utilities Commission, them turning down 30 kilometers of uh, of Fortis, BC, a natural gas pipeline they want to build to add greater capacity for the Okanagan, which, as you know, is fast-growing, number one. Uh, And these are private dollars, and Fortis has already said we're two winters away from hitting capacity in regards to their pipeline to getting natural gas to the Okanagan. I mean, it seems rather absurd. It does uh, on its face, and the Premier obviously is going to have to better explain how they are making these determinations in terms of investments. And clearly one of the worries from this government is around investment in um, non-renewables. The, the focus continues to be renewable power, moving away from oil, moving away from natural gas. But there is demand here that is needed, and there is power that is needed. And that's one of the things the Premier will have to be clear to people on, is how are they going to ensure that the power that British Columbians need is there when they need it? And what are they doing? Because you know, not only do these projects come with power, they come with jobs. And with the economy the way it is and concerns around global economic pressures, what is this government doing to ensure that there are opportunities across the province for employment. Forestry continues to be a priority, but there is so many, there are so many more sectors, including this crucial Fortis work that that is needed in terms of ensuring that the job market is fully tapped. Richard, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jess joined by show contributor Jeremy Judson and technical producer Talia Miller. Uh, Jerry, Talia, welcome. 
Hello. Hello. And this conversation actually, uh, I guess, all started during one of our editorial meetings yesterday, and we were talking about uh, the cost of BC Hydro. Now, uh, I think it still remains the, uh, it's been used a few times, it's the fifth lowest um, cost point for energy or uh, power in North America out of any um, jurisdiction. So our electricity is relatively cheap because we built uh, early, many, many, many decades ago and been living off clean energy. Uh, and I'm not saying it's perfect because BC Hydro's had its problem over the years. But uh, Talia and Jerry, you both were talking about your experiences. Of course, Jerry is from Alberta. Uh, Talia grew up in London, Ontario. So let me start with Jerry first. Uh, when you first got to Vancouver to British mm-hmm. Columbia, when you when you got your hydro bill, what was your reaction? Oh, the opposite of sticker shock, whatever that is. It was stunning because they did take a deposit because it was my first British Columbia address where I was registered with BC Hydro, but I did get that deposit back and then I wasn't paying for my power for quite some time because um, it really made a dent. It was like four months worth of power that was covered by with my deposit. But uh, yeah, in Alberta, it was nutty. It was often very high two figures, sometimes into the three figures, especially if you were living in a house with electric heat. Um, there is lots of places in Alberta that use electric heat and then the people get hooped by by their energy bill when it's minus 30 and you're using your electric heat. Well, then you have your two, three figure, um, your high, like your three figure electricity bill. And I looked, so the regulated rate plan in Alberta right now, which you can pay to, you can opt into to kind of avoid market rate fluctuation, which comes mm-hmm. with a privatized energy system or systems, you know, when you have to choose the the company. So it's 18.16 cents per kilowatt hour, which is, I believe, higher maybe than London, Ontario on average, not to brag or whatever. But then uh, the market rate right now is 16.31 cents per Excuse me, kilowatt hour. Okay. And BC Hydro is less than that. Less than that. Yeah. My power bill here has been stunningly low. Really? Yeah. Same. And like I, my. Was it shocked though? Like were you kind of like, whoa. Yeah. I'm like, are you sure? Because yeah, my, my power, my, my energy bill and it's the same natural gas heating in my building and natural gas heating and back home. Uh And yeah, my power bill is super, super low. I've never paid more than $45 and for on my BC Hydro bill. Yeah, it, like I said, it's the fifth lowest uh, when it comes to um, what, what utilities charge in in North America. So it is it is we were lucky that way. Uh, tell you, tell me, what was it like for you coming from London, Ontario? I mean, I was always taught you don't run the dishwasher until after seven p.m. or even like the washer, the dryer, nothing gets touched until after seven. And I would often get in trouble if I did by growing up. So yeah. that so basically, <laughs> yes. your parents are like that. Those are peak hours. Yep. Uh, and you wash your dishes or whatever, whatever use of power that you need, you do it after the peak hours. Absolutely. Once you leave a room, you turn off every single light. And that's been great um, habits to have now because my power bill is only about like $30 a month or two every two months, which is super great out here for for a, for a, a condo. Yep. Kind of that you live in. So so compared to, let's say if you're living in London, Ontario for something similar like that, any sense of what the bill would be like? My mom would would often say when she had me and my brother, it would be very, very high. And then when I left, it was a little better. But then the moment <laughs> my brother, he just moved out this summer, yeah. she's like, it's never been better since he's <laughs> moved out. So don't, I would say maybe for her, she's moved. So probably like... 
maybe like a hundred for her just because she lives out in like the suburbs area and things yeah. like that. But she's always said to me, she's like, oh, I was talking with her over Christmas and she was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened, <laughs> happened to wow. my bells was my brother moving out. But, you know, we we uh, uh, actually debate and argue in this province about BC Hydro is going to tell me to wash my dishes outside of prime time hours. Are you kidding me? But it's going to come uh, somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. We're going to get charged more during uh, peak periods. And we should be washing our dishes or whatever it may be in regards to power outside of that. But it's not a norm here. I think some people just do it, but a lot of folks don't. That's wild to me. Is it? That's how I was grew up. And I'm just like, you know, it, it makes sense. Yeah. Well, we've always had enough power here and it's been cheap, right? And uh, So far. Must be so nice. <laughs> well, but, that, but yesterday we were talking to Richard McCandless. He said that look, we've made some smart decisions decades ago and we were living off those smart decisions. Now we need 3,000 megawatts of power and that's going to have to come from wind and some of the other uh, energy sources out there. But, you know, the amount of potential projects is from industry, LNG, uh, whatever it may be, that's going to eat up so much power. Uh, Never mind the residential growth that we're already talking about. And if one side wants more than the other, it can impact the residential side as well. So uh, I think the next 20 or 30 years is where BC is going to have to grow up and actually make some tough decisions. And we've never had that challenge before. And they might be ugly. It might be unfavorable. I don't know. We've just got to be grown ups about it and just say, you know, the the world doesn't owe you energy. You just got to make some smart decisions Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. how we're going to be creating it and producing it. That's for sure. Thank you. Thank you. You know, uh, when these types of events happen, weather events, um, we uh, get a lot of emails here at CKNW. We'll get emails from the Ministry of Transportation. Uh, We'll get emails from specific schools, post-secondary institutions. We will then get uh, emails uh, from respective communities. So it's all these folks either preparing for the storm, reacting to the storm. Uh, But there never seems to be a cohesive response to the snow uh, in regards to how we deal with all of that in Metro Vancouver with 21 municipalities and then add add to that uh, a regional government and add to that a provincial government that is responsible for our highways as well. Joining me to talk a little bit about our snow response is Daniel Fontaine, a city councillor in New Westminster. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on, Jess. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about what's coming. We're expecting about 10 centimetres of snow overnight, potentially. Mm. Tomorrow's going to be a bit of a challenge, and then it may turn to rain. It may not, just depending on, on what happens tomorrow. And then we may get another 10 centimetres of rain. Um, has anything changed? I know you, you, you floated this balloon before, uh, a few months mm. back. Has there been any uptick in it talking together as a region in regards to the issue of, of just our snow response? No, uh, the simple answer is no. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, several hundred thousand commuters uh, about a week or so ago were impacted, several hundred thousand commuters were impacted during Snowmageddon. Um, you know, a small skip of snow, one to three centimeters can shut down our entire transportation grid. Notwithstanding all of that, there is just a, a distinct lack of uh, interest and an appetite to uh, bring together the the right officials, um, the the folks who can perhaps comment on this and speak to why. Every time now, it seems like we get um, even a mild bit of snow, just a skiff of snow. Our entire transportation grid comes to uh, a complete halt, and uh, I, I'm I'm absolutely perplexed why there, this hasn't been taken up at the metro region, nor why perhaps the province uh, of British Columbia through the Minister of Transportation hasn't taken. Uh, a little bit of an interest on this and bringing the players together because 
Jazz, you and I have been talking about this for going on now 14 months since I've been calling for the Snow Summit, give or take. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we don't seem to be any further ahead to getting answers to some serious questions as to why our uh, transportation network cannot cope with uh, a mild amount of snow. Uh, even with this, uh, the Arctic uh, temperatures uh, uh, over the weekend and early last week, uh, I stayed uh, a little late uh, downtown after the show, and I think I left downtown at about 7.45. You know, there was some challenges at the Massey, Massey Tunnel there. Uh, it wasn't an accident, but it was just dealing with, with ice and everything else. Uh, it still took me two hours and 15 minutes to get home. Uh, and, you know, and, and is the challenge, do you just do you think, authorities not wanting to be held accountable? Is that, is that the core issue in your mind? You know, I've been asked to to comment on that a number of times, and I, I'm only led to believe that you know a lot of people do not want to sit down in a room and potentially have fingers pointed at them. And I've I've said countless times uh, over the last year or so since we had the initial snowmageddon that this isn't a blame game. This is about learning. And if you continue to repeat the same behavior over and over, you know what they say uh, about that, Chaz. I mean, we're we're continually um, facing these these snowstorms. Uh, we people get impacted uh, post the snowstorm. We talk about could we do things better, and then the rain melts the snow away, and away we go. We wait for the next snowstorm to arrive. We we should be and, and could be doing a lot better. We could be learning from other Canadian cities. We could be talking about whether or not our regional governance model around how we approach and react to this could be modernized. We could um, you know be talking about how the the province is better integrating its snow removal with with municipalities. I mean the list goes on and on. But you can't do that unless you bring the right experts into the room and we have that discussion. And it may trigger, you know, discussion around mandatory snow tires or other things that, you know, might be controversial. Bring it on. Let's have that discussion. And then let's see if we can come up with some solutions. I think you raise a good point there, particularly around regional government Um I know some communities will be hit harder than others uh, in Metro Vancouver tomorrow. The ones that are spared will be doing a victory lap in some way through press <laughs> releases. Uh, I can already see it coming. It always happens uh, when you sometimes go, well, if we know that, let's say in the case of the Arctic um, Arctic uh, front that hit us, turns out Burnaby and Coquitlam, based on our reports, were hit a little harder around the Highway mm-hmm. 1 and some of the hills in, in, in Coquitlam and Burnaby area. If we had a regional response and you see it coming, you can redirect resources mm-hmm. to those areas, right? Uh, rather than saying, well, I'm responsible for XYZ community and my, let's say, 75,000, 100,000 residents, we did okay. We're going to keep our trucks just running around doing their thing, even though we're going to be okay, compared to, let's say, in this case, Burnaby and and uh, Coquitlam perhaps needing uh, more resources. Mm-hmm. In, in many ways, one could argue, I guess our snow response is kind of like governance. It's 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 very balkanized. <laughs> Yeah, we, we need uh, less excuses, fewer victory laps, and, and more solutions. And I think that until we get to the solution phase of actually figuring out that perhaps we can redirect resources from one city to another um, that's perhaps having a struggle or an issue with snow removal, we're going to be repeating this uh, rinse and repeat over and over until we get this, this done. I mean, our region has grown so significantly. There are more vehicles on the road now. <clears throat> the capacity for um, uh, usage of vehicles hasn't really expanded much. When we're getting these snowstorms, we're getting things like the snow bombs on, on uh, you know, things like the Portman Bridge with new designs. All of these things have to be factored into the context of climate change and the fact that, 
you know, I'm, I'm always, I, I do chuckle a bit when, when elected officials say I'm surprised that this has happened. I mean, some of these are the same elected officials who've been telling us for two decades that climate change is going to impact our weather. And then they're surprised that they can't clear the snow in their cities. I mean, we have to get real with this and, and begin working towards solutions versus simply, you know, making excuses or doing victory laps. That is true, and uh, I think we had a guest the other day saying we're probably going to add another 200,000 people uh, to the region over the next year or so. So it's not going to get any easier, that's for sure. Daniel, uh, stick with it. Uh, Hope you're successful uh, (laughs) sooner rather than later. Really appreciate your time today. I'm going to stick with it. Thanks, Jess. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.